Everybody doing good? Give you a little bit of update before we get going on, our, on this morning's message. Those of you that are, are wondering about my wife and her surgery, um, she went into surgery Thursday. Uh, everything went real well. Uh, the surgeon was happy and ecstatic about, about what they found. Um, so they said, give you just some medicals. So they, they removed the mass and, and with the margins. So they took some stuff out around it. They did an initial pathology and the, the, the thing around the mass goes clear of, of cancer. So that's a praise God. Um, and then they, they took biopsies of the first two lymph nodes and those are clear. So everything is, is a real positive. So she got home Thursday, was an outpatient, and so she was, she's doing great. She slept most Thursday, most of Friday. Uh, yesterday, she woke up, and this will tell you how she's doing. So I was like, what, what are you doing? I tried to cook breakfast, didn't want anything, because I was trying to be nice. Husband, do you know how that is, right? You gotta be nice, you gotta be nice to this, these kind of situations. And so she's in the back room, and she's like one arm in it, and she's mopping. And I'm like, Honey, what are you doing? And the dog's back there. And I'm like, Tucker, one job you have as a dog in our house. Watch this lady. And he looks at me. He's like, ah, you know how it is. I can't do nothing. You can't do nothing. She's on her own. I'm like, honey, what are you doing? She goes, oh, I had the doctor said I have to walk. Walk, honey. Walk. Walk. Not mop. Walk. He goes, but the doctor said that the room needs to be clean. And I'm looking around, the room's clean, because, you know, she's like this spotless housekeeper. And every once in a while, I'll get involved in sort of spotless housekeep. And, like, first off, you don't know what the doctor said, because you weren't listening. Just walk. So she's ornery. She's getting ornerier as we get along. So she's doing good. It's a sign of health for us. The, 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 the more thing that she gets, so... God's good. God is good when you're freaked out and worried. And your eyes are tearful, and God's good when you get good news. God is good in the midst of questions, and God is good in the midst of assurance. So, so keep praying. We're, so a couple weeks we go back to the oncologist, and they finalize the pathology on everything that they took, and we're going to trust that what was initially found is is it remains that way. We're also going to trust that. Um, the initial, so her initial um, treatments are, th are three weeks of radiation with no chemo. So we're ecstatic about that. And so we just keep praying at that. So three weeks, five days a week, 15 minutes a day um, is what they're saying right now. So but continue to, we appreciate your prayers. We appreciate your, your uh, support and, and everything that you're doing with us. So um, been a crazy few weeks, right? In a crazy few weeks, when you when you face things that you don't understand and you don't know, you always turn to experts. I don't know how about you guys, but that's kind of kind of me. Which means in most of my life, I'm always turning to someone else for answers. And in 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 the medical field, you know, you you go and, and when you go through something like this, that's all that you hear are the experts, right? You go and talk to the initial person that reads the ultrasound, the initial mammogram, and then you talk to the surgeon, and then you talk to the oncologist, and they use big, giant words, and they explain big, giant things, and you nod your head like you know what they're talking about. You don't have a clue. And Dan looks at me, and I 
I know certain big words about leadership, but medical, man, I have no idea what they're saying. But it sounds good. And even in less serious things, you turn to experts. Right? Mechanics in the house, you know that, man, our cars go down. I have no idea. I know how to put it in drive. I know how to check the oil sometimes. But even now, I don't have to do that because the light comes on and tells me to change it. Takes the pressure off of me. And you, you pull, pull your car into a mechanic and they are like, well, yeah, you know, the, this, that. And my brother's a mechanic, so I always bring him our cars. And he'll, like, break the bad news in, in parts. Well, you, you know, your, 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 your engine's missing. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course, my engine's missing. I really know what that means. God bless you. And, you know, the, the tranny's slipping. Oh, I noticed that, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you and I are on the same page with that. And then he, you pull up, and he's like, did you hear the squeak? And I'm like, no, dude, I don't hear nothing high-pitched. I go, oh, that's a shame because your brakes are bad, and you need to turn your rotors. God bless me. Right? And when we turn all the time to experts, because a lot of us, it's like, you don't know what you're doing, I mean, because of my education now, I, I, I sit at times with, at tables and in classrooms and over conferences with people with a lot of names on the back side, or a lot of letters on the back side of their name. And they use giant words, and I'm like, yeah. You guys need coffee. And, and, and so you, you, you sit there and you're like, you deflect and you defer to people who are experts. And we see this all the time in news. Right? How many people are news watchers? You need to pray for my parents. Like seriously, my, you, yeah, I can go over to my dad's house at like 6 in the morning, news is on. I can go to my dad's house at 9 o'clock at night, news is on. I'm like, Pops, man, rest. Give it a rest. It's the same thing. 24-hour news cycle, it's the same thing. Oh, you never know, Dave, you never know. And, and so there's this idea that, sorry. All right, Andrew, you might be up, buddy. So there was one, there was one, BBC was interviewing a guy named Robert Kelly about the Korean crisis. Robert Kelly, Professor Robert Kelly, expert in the field of Korean politics has wrote for all sorts of things, taught for all sorts of ways, and it was this really incredibly formal interview. Right? Just, it was really, really formal. And so as BBC began to interview him, I want you to watch how the BBC deferred to the expert. Go ahead, Andrew. That this is a triumph of democracy. Scandals happen all the time. The question is how do democracies respond to those scandals? Uh, and what will it mean for, uh, for the wider region? I think one of your children has just walked in. I mean, shift, shifting, shifting sands in the region, do you think relations with the North may change? Um, I would be surprised if they do. <laughs> the, um, pardon me. Pardon me. My apologies. <laughs> what will this be for the region? My apologies. North, uh, sorry. Um, North Korea, North, uh, South Korea's policy choices on North Korea have been severely limited 
in the last six months to a year because of North Korea's behavior. Uh, most recently, the use of VX gas in the airport in Malaysia that indicates that North Korea really doesn't follow global norms. I got great, I, I found not only humor in that, but great hope in it. Right, I mean, as a, first off, as a parent, you ever had that situation? You know, you're in a serious conversation and in comes your kid. And he's like all smeared out with something. He's, he's been eating something or touching something that he shouldn't have. And he died. And he just like just a hot mess of everything. Kids are famous for not knowing better. Kid doesn't have a clue about how to be proper. And I love that about kids. Somewhere along the line as adults, we lose that trait. As adults, we defer and deflect to people in authority and position, and we know how to act. But a kid, kid just sees his parent. Right? And what you don't know about that clip is they interviewed him on the backside of, of that. And it went viral, of course, because, you know, the girl comes up and she's just this cute little thing with, with, with big old glasses and the, the little baby in a, in a walker and, you know, playing bumper cars and the mom's panic because mom knows how to be proper. Dad's on TV with the BBC. You guys know better than this. Like, actually, mom, we don't, man. Dad's in here and I'm going to go, I'm going to go, go see him. We've heard a lot as adults, you know better than me. We heard a lot as adults that, that you know better. How many parents of teenagers have ever said that phrase? You gotta know better than that, man. Didn't I raise you better than that? How many have heard that as teenagers? All right, nice. Know that you're not alone in that. Right, in, in, in the world of of professional world or academia, there's, there's certain standards and certain expectations and certain ways you need to behave and talk and address and certain titles that you use because you're taught how to live and how to act. And we are brought up to know better than to interrupt something like that clip shows. And yet, this morning, if there's anything I can leave you with this morning, if anything you walk out the door with, let us never as believers get to the point to where we know better. Let us as believers never get to the point to where we can't enter a room with Daddy God waiting for us in the middle of everything. Because when we know better as children of God, we question whether we can approach God. When we grow up and mature, we question our ability to talk and we normally defer to somebody more holy and more righteous and more proper and more secure and we, we defer to them. Thinking all along that we don't deserve or don't have access to or don't have the rights or privileges of someone so proper or so holy or so righteous, can we as a people never get to the point to where we can say, oh, we know better than that. Can we remain? as children of God, that no matter what we face, no matter where we are, no matter what we bring to the table, no matter how messy our face is from eating SpaghettiOs, doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, and dads and moms, you know this, at the end of the day, no matter what you're in, 
no matter where you thought, there is nothing more precious than a child coming to you, just seeking you out. Not for anything that you can give them, not for any need that they have, but simply because they miss you. And, and, and as a dad of adults who at times look back to the time when my sons were, were children, there was nothing more precious than when a child brings him and all his glorious mess to me, his dad. And I don't care how much they smell. I don't care what they broke, what they blew up, what they set on fire. At that moment, at that moment, as a parent, heart leaps. Well, maybe sometimes. Not when they start things on fire. And yeah, my kids did that. So, because when as adults you know better, you question things. As adults, when you know better, you stay out of the room. As adults, when you know better, you never come and break into anything because you don't feel like you have the right. There's a section in Scripture, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And the story begins with Jesus. If you look back at the previous section of the Scripture, Jesus had been wrestling with the religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes. He had been wrestling with and talking about the people that knew better. And they had brought with them all these critiques. And what are your people doing? And really the argument that they were bringing was arguments of people that don't really have a care in the world. How many people know that if you spend your life in church and you begin to wonder and argue about what you can eat and when you can eat and what you can say and how you say it and the traditions and everything else, your life's pretty sweet. Because if you're spinning out on the minor stuff, at the end of the day, it's like, come on, dude, that's it? That's all you did? That's your big complaint? That's it? That's all you got? And you know as a leader, as a person, if that's all that you argue with, he has to get to the point of going, just shish, shish. What does my wife do? You're doing this, and I need you really to do just this. My wife never has done that to me yesterday. Friday, yeah. Yesterday, no. So Jesus was facing these guys, and they were arguing about traditions, and they were arguing about actions. And Jesus, basically, Scripture alludes to the fact that he's just like, I got time out, man. I'm done. And he goes to a, a place, and have you ever found yourself weary of the arguments other people bring? The arguments that are really, at the end of the day, insignificant and meaningless, and yet they always want to just like, yeah, but what about? You know you shouldn't have, what about? And, and Jesus was at that point, and it says in, in verse 21, it says, Jesus went away and there withdrew the district of Tyre and Sidon. And yet while he leaves the clamor of the religious, his ears and his eyes are always attuned to a need. It says, and behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. A Canaanite woman at the time was, was an outcast. Was a destitute, was, lives on the fringes of society. They weren't Jewish. They were despised and rejected by an entire culture. They had nothing to offer. They had no position. 
in Jewish religious life. They had no ability to enter into the temple. They lived, they were, they were the dirt guys on the opposite end of the tracks. They lived on the wrong side of the tracks, looked the wrong way, acted the wrong way, and were pointed to as the wrong type of people. And this woman comes out and it says, Behold, a Canaanite woman who were objects of scorn from a region came out and crying. Ah, there's so much hope in that. That God cares so much for humanity that in the midst of needing a break, he still takes time and sees us. That we do not sit on the backside of life wondering if someone can carry the burden to us, that we with all our outcasts and fears and worries and insecurities, we who live on the wrong side of the track can come out and cry out to God. And yet it seems like Jesus, his weariness, took the time to just stop. Did you believe? Could you believe? That Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who last week that we celebrated, rose from the dead, conquered death, conquered the grave. Could we as individuals actually believe that if we leave ourselves, if we leave our cloistered life, if we leave our doubts and insecurities, that he would make room for us? And if we could believe that, what would that change? Right, if we as individuals with all our baggage and all our junk and all the, the stuff that society tells us we carry with us, because that's what the Canaanite did. The Canaanite was constantly pointed at. The Canaanite was constantly fingered and said, yeah, but you're one of those guys. You're one of those guys that broke the law. You're one of that group of people that did this, that, and the other. You have no right to enter into relationship with God, and yet it seems like in this story, this gal didn't know anybody. All the traditions knew better. Oh, you don't have any right? All the Jewish people knew better. Oh, you better not come near. This lady didn't know any better. This lady was simply having a need had nowhere else to turn and said, what do I do? And so she came out and it says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me. And how the text reads, take pity on me. I don't have nothing to bring you. I have no right to stand before you. I'm not holy and righteous. I'm not a, a scribe or a Pharisee. I'm not an adherer to the law. I'm I, I might have sat outside and listened to what the Jewish religion told me, but I have no right to come and enter into a relationship with you. I am nothing. Can you hear my cry? Can you hear me? Can you see me? Can you notice me? I, I, I know I, I, I have nothing to bring you. I'm, I'm not fixed up. I'm not don't have the right words. I, I don't know the right prayers. I, I don't live like this person. I don't live like that person. I, I look different. I grew up different. Maybe I never stepped foot in church, but man, I got a need. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? And how many of us 
have stepped outside of our life and in the midst of our brokenness and in the midst of our worry and in the midst of our insecurity and in the midst of our fear, we come to God offering nothing more than our need and we say, can you please help me? Can you please help me? I don't know any better. I don't have nowhere else to turn. I have nowhere else to look. I have nowhere else to ask. I, I, I don't have anything. Can you please, can you please help me? And it says that Jesus said, you wonder what must have been going through her mind. We might look at a, a, a woman and, and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, it says her daughter was severely oppressed by a demon in Western society. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to most of us. You go to other parts of the world, it makes a great deal of sense. But for many of us in a Western mindset, we might come and look at that and go, eh, that doesn't, it kind of looks a little weird to me. But what I want you to see is not necessarily the the reason, but the heart in which it was approached. You see, at the end of the day, those of us that have been there know that we can look towards a lot of different people, but we only have one truth to turn to. And for many of us, we might have turned to the left and to the right, seeking answers in society or in relationships or in religion. And finally, we get to the point, it's like, I don't know what else to do. And we turn to the one who provides help one who provides help. Just can you help me? And how the text reads is that it was over and over a thing. It wasn't a proper response, right? How the, how the original text reads that he, she came out from where she was and she continually cried out, Oh God, oh Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Oh Lord, can you hear me? Oh Lord, can you help me? Over and over and over again. And I love the section in Daniel. Daniel writes that we make a plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. We make a plea not because we deserve something, but because of the very character of God who we turn to. Jesus didn't know any better, and it drove her to Christ, but verse 23 says he didn't even answer her. He didn't even answer a word. Can you imagine that? I can. How many people have sat and prayed at night about something and you've never received an answer? And you butt your heads up against the wall over and over again and you think God must hate you. Because surely if he loved you, he would answer you at least within the first week or the month. I mean, you're not even praying for yourself. You're praying for a kid. You're not like you're asking for something that would make your life easier. You're asking for something else. And yet it's like God doesn't say anything. Silence is not God's signature or sign that God hates you. Silence and a lack of answer is not a sign that God doesn't engage you and dismisses you. There are times in our lives, and we know this, we know this, even though we hate to admit it out loud, that it seems like heaven is buttoned up tight. 
that no matter how eloquent our words, no matter how holy our meaning, no matter how pure our livelihood, when we lift up our voices unto God, it's like we're talking to ourselves. And at that point in time, we just simply sit back and we're like, God, what am I supposed to do? I'll keep asking. Over and over, keep coming to God. Because that's what the woman did. Right? It wasn't a one and done. We didn't craft a, a, a prayer in our journal and edit it out and then blog it. And then finally, on our knees, with the right posture, come before him and read it out loud and then turn around and open our eyes and expect an answer. No, we as believers in Jesus Christ, as human beings, at times have to go over and over and over to God. And it is not a sign that he has abandoned us, though it might seem that way. It is not a sign that he has walked away from us because he is disgusted with what he sees in us because though it might seem that way, we as children of God have the right relationship with the Father because of what Christ did on the cross so that we can come to him. And even when it's silent, we come again. And even when it seems like nobody hears, we come again. And even when it seems that we grow hoarse and weary and we're tired of weeping, we come again. It says in Matthew, it says, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for and keep on seeking and you will find and keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and to everyone who knocks the door will be open. While Jesus didn't immediately respond for which was unusual to him because Jesus normally in scripture responds to a need that he sees the disciples had no problem talking. It says the disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. Please get rid of her. Do something. Shut her up. Because it's not proper how she's asking. I mean, she's a grown woman, and all she does is yapping and asking over and over and crying out, Jesus, shut her up. Even if you have to answer her prayers, at least answer her prayers so she can go on her way and get out of my head. Disciples knew how to act. Disciples have been around church long enough to know how to act. Disciples have been around religion long enough to know how you're supposed to dress and how the proper decorum and the proper frame of when you go to a teacher, a rabbi of, of Jesus' claim. So Jesus finally asks, like, I was sent only to the lost sheep of, of, of Israel. And, and this is where this story gets kind of sticky because on one hand, you can, you can look at it. And you, for many of us, if we get one answer or we get a perceived answer or we get silence, we walk away and like, God must not love us. Been there? Praying for someone that you love and you, you hear something. Or it doesn't go your way, and immediately it's like, maybe God desires this. And we begin to apply a theology of a lack of faith on a situation that has not yet finished its course. And we begin to, to explain away our fears as obedience when simply God's not done yet. And let me stop you here for a moment. There are schools of theology that build a methodology around this section of Scripture. 
that the way to manipulate God is to continually go back and we applaud her diligence. And we look, God wasn't going to answer, but God somehow was convinced because of her diligence. Can we, as men and women, as believers of Jesus, as professors of faith of the one who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, that we serve a bigger God than one that can be manipulated by a specific method? Can we stop for a moment and back away from a theology that only exists in prosperous worlds and rest in the mystery of how God operates in our lives? For his ways aren't our ways. And unfortunately, that is a reality at times. I don't have a theology for this section other than the woman's faith was immense and that God loved her. And so Jesus says, not right, like, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. I was sent, I know I don't have anything. I know I'm not chosen. I know I don't fit the bill. I know I'm not righteous. I know I'm not holy. I know that I sin. I know that I fall short of your glory. I know that I'm filthy rags. But God, can you please help me? And she goes on and he answers, is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? I was with Jesus. That's just flat mean. Here's a woman praying for a daughter and he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oh. There's a guy smarter than me, a guy named Barkley. Barclay. How do you say that name? Barclay. Barclay? Barclay. Theologian. Barclay. And so he said, have you ever said something and meant something else? And you knew you meant something else by the person you were talking to or the tone of your voice or the grin on your face. See, we read that at times and we write off, if we don't know Jesus, if we don't know the Jesus that Scripture talks about, like, man, that dude's uptight. That's not right. That guy's mean. God's mean. I knew God was mean. He hates me. But if you were with me, you ever want to get confused about how people talk to one another? Hang with me and Daniel and Abe for an afternoon. And just look. Like, if, if all that I did is I typed the dialogue. I wouldn't even give you the backstory. I just let you see the words like, and them guys hate each other. Those guys are mean to one another. And there are times during football season that there's, there's honest hatred. But if you look at how we talk, and then you look at how we live with one another, and the things that we say are, are grounds for, for, for friendship and not for hatred. At times, my, my family's like that. You walk in and you've never been around my family. You sit at a dinner table like, man, they got issues. And we got big issues. Big issue, God, right now. Um, but if you know us, right, it makes difference. If you read this section of scripture and you picture Jesus not as the stern taskmaster of the Old Testament, but as a, a savior who walked the earth and 
carpenter and hung out with tax collectors and sinners and he knows what his disciples are saying and just like hey get her out of here she irritates me and can you picture him kind of smiling and kind of laughing and kind of with a grin on his face and a twinkle in his eye looks at the woman who kneels before him who looks up and says Jesus can you help my daughter demon possessed and can you see him smiling and, and kind of giving like, hey, guys, watch this. And it's not right to take children's bread from, from the dogs. Because she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from their master's table. She knew what she belonged to and what she didn't belong to. And I believe that she knew who she was talking to. And I believe that he knew who he was talking to. That he was not talking to an outcast or someone that didn't fit or someone that couldn't be applied to the Jewish tradition or law. He was talking to one of his creation. You see, Scripture says that before the foundations of the earth, he existed and that all things were created through him and by him. And so his very hands knit this woman together. And so... How could he dismiss her as part of his creation? And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her woman was healed instantly. We find hope today in Can we realize that, that Jesus did not commend her for her diligence? Jesus didn't commend her how she approached him. Jesus simply commended her for her faith. And so while we don't have time to dissect certain theologies, I would want you to pause for a moment and see the faith of a woman who had nothing and the love of a Savior who had everything. And the very thing that the, he says about the woman, he said about the centurion. Oh, your faith. Been a rough couple weeks. Been a rough couple weeks. And in my position, I should know better. Right in my position, I should know better. I mean, I'm a pastor. I stand before you guys and talk about God. I shouldn't be freaked out. I should have great confidence. I should quote scripture and read verses and go, God's gonna. Somewhere last week, after we got some more news that was just stupid, I just got to the point, like, I don't know nobody. The reason I came to this scripture is because I was taken back by her desperation and in her desperation, boldness. And in her boldness, her faith, and nowhere else to go. I've been and am where some of you are. You have more questions than answers. You're more broken than whole. You're more fearful than bold. And you've heard all your life that church is this or that. And you've listened all your life to men and women who stood before you and beat you up over where you are and 
told you, you know better than that. What I'm most interested in today is not what you know and the fact that you should be something that you aren't right now, but the very simple fact that you're a child of God. And maybe for the first time you sit in church today. Maybe you're drawn here and you don't even know why you're here. Maybe you just don't. But can you feel Jesus' tug and the Holy Spirit stirring in your heart? It's like, I know you don't know. And But can you be bold enough to just go to the one who provides what you need and cry out, help me? Knowing that you have nothing to bring other than yourself and all your stuff, and that is enough because you serve and you go to a Father in heaven that loves you that loves you. Nothing, not everything gets fixed, but there is an assurance when you come and you kneel before the maker of heavens and the earth and you go, help me. I know I have nothing, but you are there and you're it. That's all I got. And we as men and women lay aside our traditions and our properness and become spaghetti face covered kid that goes to his dad his dad can we have the boldness and the assurance that knows that he is not going to turn you away that you're not going to be dragged out of the room kicking and screaming he's going to kneel before you and go yeah what do you need so great is his love amen